Okay, so you're just going to sort of play it by ear as far as it's not like you're like, okay, the long-term 10-year plan is I want to have like platformer be like an independent publishing brand, like TechCrunch, but cultural and, and stuff like this. It's not that. You know, I mean, the thing is, like, brands are so ephemeral anyway. It's like, is any publication cool for longer than 10 years? I I don't know. There's so many zombie brands floating around, you know? It's like, the last thing I would want is, like, for Platformer to become Spin Magazine, where it's just, like, bought by, like, a hedge fund or, like, you know, the royal family of Monaco or something, and it just runs the Tofungus ads. Like, that is not my dream for a platform. I'm, like, a music fan. It's, like, my favorite bands are the ones that come along and they put out three great albums and you never hear from them again, and they're legends. Like, that's what I would much prefer that platformer is. Okay, so no Vegas residency for you? Oh, I would do a Vegas residency. Welcome to the Rebooty Show. I'm Brian Morrissey. Very excited for this week's guest. I'm excited for every week's guest, but I'm particularly excited for this week's guest. Casey Newton, sole proprietor of Platformer. And I think you're one of the more successful sort of case studies of the going solo movement. And we'll talk about that. And we want to focus really on what it's been like. At least I want to focus on what it's been like building a business because both of us come from the journalism side and they don't train us on that stuff at all. No. Famously, they keep us away from it. <laughs> which, I, which, by the way, I and let's just start there. Like, yeah. I think like it was almost. I this is my sort of conspiracy theory is that the church and state divide was sort of sold to like keep keep the journalist people in their place. They're like, don't you worry about it. It'd be terrible. There's many conflicts here. You don't want to know. And then, oh, by the way, the people on the sales side are making making way more than you. It's really true. And I mean, look, there are very good reasons to keep the journalism separate from the business in at least some ways. And now that I am running my own shop, I do sometimes come across those tripwires and think like, well, well, probably shouldn't uh, walk over there. Right. But very much the case that if we had any idea how much the salespeople had been making when we were like 22, I think we would have been having very different conversations in the newsroom. Yeah. yeah. I mean, nobody goes into journalism to like get rich. Right. I mean, if they do, they're not very strategic. But But what if people thought they could get rich? Maybe they would do more journalism and maybe we'd have better journalism. Yes. That's a good point. I think it was like forced on us this idea that we take some sort of vow of poverty and stuff like this. And meanwhile, everyone else in the organization was like, yeah, no, not for me. I'm okay (laughs) with that. (laughs) Anyway, so let's get into it with, you left The Verge two years ago. That's right. Yeah. And so help me through the decision, because at the time, this was when like Substack was really starting to get a lot more attention and there was there were more stories about it and the creator economy stuff. But what gave you the confidence that this is a path I want to take? Yeah, so I'm a very risk-averse person in general. And I had basically done every single thing I could to de-risk the decision before I made it, right? So I had written a daily newsletter for three years when I left The Verge. I had built up an audience and it was big enough that even if like a half a percent of those people had agreed to my price, like I would eat, my bills would be paid. And so as I was thinking about whether I wanted to do this just from a sheer, like, can I keep the lights on at my house perspective? I was like, I think the numbers are big enough here. 
In terms of why I wanted to do it as a journalistic proposition, though, I grew up in the newspaper industry. I like to say that I was one of the first people to have my job disrupted by the internet twice, right? Like first, the internet came along and ate print, and then social came along and ate the web. And all of a sudden, it wasn't clear like what that next 10 years was going to look like. And I had survived you know, so many rounds of layoffs at those newspapers that I worked for. I actually had an, an amazing job at Vox Media where I felt very comfortable, but you know, who knows what was going to happen in three years, five years, 10 years, right? And I thought, man, the one thing I've learned by, from covering these social networks is you've got to stop yourself from, from having a middleman in between you and the audience, right? Like, I've got to go get that direct connection. And there is no more direct connection than having your own business and selling a product for money. And so it was the middle of the pandemic. I was waking up every day in this house, just typing in a box. And I thought, I can type in a box for Vox Media or I can type in a box for myself. You know, why not just type in the box for myself? I was living like a retiree. I was buying groceries twice a week. That was like the majority of my expenses. <laughs> I was like, you know, I'm never going to have a cheaper existence than I do right now. Let's do it. So I did it. Yeah. I think there's like a few things stand out. One is journalists by their nature are risk averse, right? Mm -hmm. I used to joke, you go to some event, like the worst is like when they're like, oh, we're going to seat you at the journalist table. It's like, oh no, it's going to be constant complaints and about, <laughs> oh, why wow, this is wrong. This is bad because the profession, that's how we're supposed to be skeptical. We're supposed to, yeah. people are lying to us all the time. And <laughs> so I think that that mindset shift is really difficult. And that's why I don't think this is for everyone. But I think the two other things that stood out is one is autonomy. Right. And the other is, look, even if you, you had a very, you know, I want to say cushy job, but a very good job. It right? was a cushy like, job. It absolutely was a cushy. <laughs> it was the cushiest job I've ever had. It was, I loved it so much. No, but even people who have, and I would always tell this to like the young people who like, and I'm like, look, it gets really narrow. Once you got like real expenses in life, it gets really narrow and you got to specialize. You got to decommoditize yourself as much as possible. But I feel like for every single person who has been in this profession, they've, they've been laid off at some point. They've had their job taken away from them. And even if they get to the other side, the precariousness, precarity, I have no idea what the word the is. The precarity, if you will. <laughs> it's like, let's just make it up. Yeah. The precarity of that existence sort of sticks with them, right? Very much so. And again, I did feel like I was at a point in my career where like, if layoffs came I would be okay for a while. I didn't think I was going to be the first person to be laid off. Although again, a telecom buys you, decides they don't want a website anymore, and then you're not nearly as safe as... You. So you see how I immediately you know, go yeah. back to the precarity that I feel. And I think because I was working for Gannett in the early 2000s, there was just an absolutely ruthless company that was just going to squeeze every penny out of those newsrooms. I just sort of assumed that that was what it was always going to be like. It just made such a strong impression on me. And I did get to a point where I was, I want to see if we can figure out a new path. Because that's the thing, right? It's like, as journalists, we are skeptical. We do complain. But we can also just try to go build different other things, right? And so I just felt like I was at this moment in history where it's like, maybe I could just try to find a different path for folks like yes. this. So did you want to make a different type of product than you were able to make at The Verge? Mostly no, interestingly, right? I was writing a daily newsletter and I wanted to keep writing the daily newsletter, right? I kind of wanted to 
change the audience a bit. I thought maybe I can find a different or even bigger audience if I go independent, right? Like I'd sort of been drafting off the power of this brand for six and a half years. What's going to happen if I go stand on my own and try to just sort of shine the spotlight a little bit more clearly on on what I was doing? But the thing I love about newsletters in particular is that they can evolve so quickly. You know, if you go back for the five years that I've been writing a daily newsletter now, there are whole sections that used to be there that just aren't there anymore. And it's totally fine. Whereas like you work for a website, you want to redesign it, give yourself two years. That's how long it's going to take, right? My newsletter can just evolve. So it, it has changed actually, you know, since I left The Verge. Yeah. So one of the things, and I remember when you left The, the Verge is like, you took your email list with you. Mm-hmm. How did, Which I, like, yeah. do you, did you have something on Jim Bankoff or like, how did you swing that deal? Like, cause well, I need, like, I sell ads now and I need to understand like how you establish that kind of leverage. I mean, this is a great moment for me to say Jim Bankoff <laughs> is the best CEO in media. And I truly believe that. When I started the process, the planning for starting Platformer, I assumed I would not take the email list. I was getting ready to walk and just think, you know, at that point, I just had 100,000 Twitter followers. And I was like, you know, these people have been reading me, you know, for what, you know, three years at this point, like enough of them will come along that even if I don't have the mailing list, I can still make it work. But you know, as I was talking with my my bosses there, who had also become very close friends, we started talking about, well, is there a deal that we could make that would be beneficial to both of us, right? That email list did not actually have a lot of value to them. There was not somebody waiting to step into it and write a daily column about social networks and democracy. And so instead of just sort of, you know, tossing it aside and doing nothing with it, we said, can we come together? Can I be a contributing editor? Can I continue to publish my column on The Verge? And, um, and we worked it out. And it was a really unexpected thing. But I, I've gotten a, an enormous amount of value I would say over the past two years of, you know, not just the, the the business relationship, but but frankly, just having some kind of like low-key coworkers, right? Like there's one Slack channel I'm in at the verge where like when I need a hit of coworker energy, I can just kind of go have it. And and so I do think you have to think about the other things that you need as a solo creator when you do that. Yeah. And I think like oh, there's a lot more focus on like burnout and stuff. I want to mm-hmm. talk to you about that yeah. a little bit, but um I think a little bit is overdone. I know you tried to avoid the word burnout like because it's so i mean i'm happy to talk burnout is a very real thing i'm just not burned out (laughs) i don't know the definition keeps shifting it reminds me of like when like i don't know several years ago like when everyone decided they were lactose intolerant i'm like (laughs) some of you just don't like milk (laughs) i am legitimately lactose intolerant (laughs) okay maybe you are like some people they just don't like milk or yogurt sits kind of funny with them i go back to like you know the blog days right and there's people like am malik and and rafat and other people who broke off on their own and They were doing the blogging thing. And, you know, I remember at the time, like, it looked very intimidating. I was like, my God, you got to build some, like, website. And then maybe Federated Media sells ads. Maybe they don't sell ads. Whereas with Substack, it was a business in a box. And because of the subscription model, it really abstracted all of the stuff that made, for risk-averse type people like us, that made it, like, seem almost, at least for me, I'll just speak for myself, almost like impossible. Like, I I don't know how to do any of that stuff. Yeah, it's ridiculously plug and play. I mean, it's amazing to think that just by adding a subscription component to a blogging platform, you can enable hundreds, maybe thousands of people to start their own successful businesses. You think about how many blogging platforms there had been before that. It had never occurred to them, right? And so I think Substack gets dragged a lot, sometimes appropriately, but like, that's one thing that they just absolutely nailed from the start. Yeah. And How attractive was it for you? Because I mean, I believe almost all your career you've written for like ad supported media, ad driven. It depends on how how you view ads, right? Like, well, I mean, I work for a newspaper, so there there was a subscription there, but I wasn't seeing much of that revenue. 
Right. But at the same time, the newspaper, their business was majority ads. Yeah. Like, yeah. look, everyone wants their work to be a, a, as widely available as possible. How did you view subscriptions as the model then and the trade-offs? So I am deeply inspired by Ben Thompson. He's somebody who really kind of invented this. I mean, the Substack guys will tell you that, you know, him and Bill Bishop at Cynicism were basically the two people that made them think like, why don't we just scale this, right? And Ben, ben in particular did one thing that I loved, which is he said, I'm going to write one thing a week that is free. So I will just give away, usually my best thinking of the week, I'm going to give away for free. And if you really like it and you want more of this kind of thing, you can pay me. And to me, that threaded a really difficult needle, you know, because some people talk about the subscription versus ad supported thing as like, well, you know, if, if we want to have a healthy democracy, we need a lot of great journalism. And if all that great journalism goes behind a paywall, then the democracy is screwed. I, th I think there's something to that, right? You don't want to limit too much the, the number of people who are getting the best kind of journalism. But, you know, I'm one person. And look, I would love to tell you that I was going to have four scoops a week and that, you know, each one of them was going to shake the industry to its foundations. But, you know, practically speaking, I'm lucky if I can get a scoop a week, right? And and much more often, I've got like four thoughts for the week and one is just slightly better than the other three. And that's the thing I give away for free, right? But like, I, I like being in that mode because it lets me feel like I'm doing the public service component of it while also going out to a reader base that, in my experience, has been much more generous to me than even the most generous media company was, right? So for me, I, I really do feel like I get to have my cake and eat it too. Yeah. And I think what's interesting is like when you go into the solo creator, I'm not going to use personal brand, but the dynamics I think are, are different as far as why people subscribe, right? Like, and I think too many times people think that it's purely transactional, right? And I think that is the case when it is a sort of faceless institutional brand. Like people are not subscribing to Gannett, like, because like they feel some affinity to Gannett. Right. No. If you feel affinity for, toward Gannett, go to therapy. Maybe some members of the Gannett family, but like outside of the, you know, the Gannett's, like the, not so much. Whereas I think what a lot of people are finding, and I'd be interested in if you're finding this, is like you don't have to like view everything as just a purely transactional commercial exchange. You pay me money, you get content. Yes. Now, I have tried to present Platformer that way because I think for it to be the best business it can be, it should be doing a job for you. If you, it's probably if you're subscribing to it, you're probably in the tech industry or in media or in comms. You're in the C-suite. There is something about it that's useful to you that helps you sort of understand the conversation in the industry. That's very much how I present it. But practically speaking, if you asked a good number of my subscribers, like, why do you just subscribe? Some of them, I don't know how many, I haven't surveyed them, but some of them have told me it's like, I want to support you to go do the thing that you do. There's this, a wonderful online creator personality, man about town, Andy Bayo. He runs waxy.org, which is sort of one of the oldest link blogs, ran the XO Festival. He's sort of always been a champion of independent creators. And I've followed Andy's work forever. And I'm just a huge fan of his. And when he described a platformer, I was saying something in my Discord server about, I don't know, you know, trying to do a good job and trying to like break news or whatever. And he sent me a message and said, like, just so you know, like, I'm here to support you. Don't worry about what I've given you. Just go try to find interesting things and like yeah. trust that that's a fair transaction. And it really meant a lot to me. And I don't have the self-confidence to believe that like most of my subscribers are like Andy, but it's nice knowing that they're there. I think if you survey, a lot of them will be. 
to yeah. be honest with you. Because yeah. like, I mean, you see it, like you have like a fairly big Twitter following, I feel like. And I think what is interesting, I think there's like two sides of it. One, like the Twitter Substack relationship is like both like very powerful and very like problematic to some degree. Mm. But I mean, not with your stuff. I mean, with the stuff like with getting into Twitter fights in order to drive Substack. Oh yeah, the, the culture warriors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't, but whatever, whatever works. Uh, but I think what is different, particularly when it's a personal thing is like, people feel like they know you. I know it probably sounds creepy to some degree too. No, it doesn't at all. I feel lucky that I have a following that is like big enough for me. I think that if it gets much bigger than this, it's probably going to not be as much fun. But you know, I was just like walking around San Francisco. Somebody's like, hey, like, are you, are you Casey? I said, yes. So I subscribed to your newsletter. Like, that's fantastic. That's super San Francisco, Casey. Very San Francisco. <laughs> it, but I will say it's happened in New York and it's happened in Santa Barbara within the last year. Okay. So the platform of subscribers are out there. We love it. But like, that is cool for me because I want people to have a personal connection. When I send out platformer, if you respond and say like, I, I have another thought, I will write you back and say, you were so smart. Thank you for sharing that with me. Right. And that is... You don't yeah. get that. You know, for example, I was at The Verge. I would write a story. We would have a comment section. The comments never started out with great piece, Casey. No. But that's how like most of the emails I get start, right? So there is I something know. different in kind about this medium. Well, that was like, you actually hear, I don't know if you found this, but you hear from people in like a constructive way, not like a you're an asshole yes. way. Uh, much Completely. more frequently you when you do newsletters and podcasts to me are very similar because the human voice is personal and all of that. Like you, you know, yes. people feel a connection to you that I feel like just gets you out of a more transactional relationship. I mean, this is why I want to start a podcast. Like I think anybody in the newsletter business should probably be in the podcast business for that exact reason. Yeah, because I think that they have similar, I've written about this, but they have similar dynamics like in that they're very human and that the connection that you have is far different than the kind of connection you have with like a Gannett website. I could be wrong. You're not wrong. I think events have similar dynamics. So when you were thinking about the business, you were like, okay, it's going to be purely subs. I don't, I'm not going to be out there slinging ads. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just I don't love ads in general. Actually, you know, reading your newsletter is something that sort of helps me like purge my, you know, general dislike for ads. Because the ads are so amazing, like, you know, like the house. You know, we of love the ads. The rebooting ads. You've never seen ads like this. But like basically anywhere on the internet I can pay to get rid of ads like I do. Like I just always have. But you know, this year I was talking to <laughs> these folks who run a jobs board, and I do write in like this particular niche with people who sort of do like trust and safety and like tech policy and platforms. And I thought, you know, that's just niche enough that it's worth seeing whether people want to buy job ads. And of course, you know, the people at this platform I'm working with are putting dollar signs in my eyes. You know, this is the easiest money you've ever made. And um, turn on and, the revenue spigot. Oh yeah, Casey. here we go, baby. <laughs> and you now we tried it and like made a little bit of money, but like people just didn't like it that much. What I will say is that it, it, the experiment was worth doing. I don't feel bad that I put ads in the newsletter because I thought it was like, if it worked, it was going to be a service for the people that it was really useful for, but it didn't really work. But I actually do have an ad thing I want to ask you about. Let's do it right now. Okay. So here's the thing. So something Substack got really good at this year was helping me add free subscribers. Oh, the recommendations thing? Yeah. Oh so God, I don't know. Yeah. Is it working for you? Oh, yeah. It's crazy. So since August 1st, I've added, I think, 9,000 subscribers is what I wrote. And it's almost all recommendations, right? So that's amazing. Now, less amazing, they don't monetize 
well at all, which is not surprising, right? These are people who like clicked a box. They have no idea who I am. They have no relationship well, with me. It's you a know. pre-checked box. It, and it's a pre-checked box, okay? So yes, we're getting all of this growth. This growth is not making me any money, but it's like when I started my Substack, I had 24,000 subscribers. Now I've got about 75,000 subscribers. So <laughs> the vast majority of those, like I'm not monetizing at all. But by the way, like, the open rate is like still pretty good. Like despite the fact that it's like much bigger, the open rate has held relatively steady for that weekly free email I set out. So I'm like, well, if there was ever an ad you were going to do, you would just put an ad and show it to these tens of thousands of people who are reading this thing every week, but who are not subscribing. And like, it sort of leads to the next thing, which is like subsection, just build an ad network, right? To me, this is the only way that they ever conceivably live up to their justification. <laughs> but you actually know things about ads. So that's why I wanted to like throw this at you. Well, I know this about ads. The first step to like building an ad business is, is to say that you'll never build an ad business. <laughs> <laughs> that's generally how it goes. And what happens is you call it something different and that's how it goes. Like, you know, The Athletic was literally marketing their entire product on the fact that it was ad free, yeah. only to add ads. And they were like, no, no, not not those ads. These ads are fine. We were talking about the other ads. Look, I disagree with Substack. I think Substack is great on many levels and what they've done in some ways is underappreciated. Like the fact that the yeah. emails like are delivered and look yeah. the way they should deliver is yeah. like pretty amazing yeah. as anyone who has sent email knows. And the fact that they've allowed so many people, like you said, as long as you have something to say, you just hook up a Stripe account and like, yeah. that's it. You're off yeah. and running. But ultimately, like you said, like, you need to have different ways to make money. And the fact is the idea of viewing all of those top of the funnel people as just like only having value if they take out a credit card to me is wrong, particularly if you're in, uh, you say niche, I say niche because I try to be European, particularly if you're in a high value niche where the people are hard to reach. It, it literally doesn't make sense. I talk with Substack with them. I'm like, I don't understand why you think you know how I should do this business more than I do. Like, I just don't understand that, to be honest with you. Right. And I think eventually they'll get there. I mean, I have a small investment in Beehive, and I think that's the opportunity that, that Tyler and his, his group saw is because, you know, media ultimately is always monetized in, in several ways. And to close yourself off from all different ways of monetization doesn't make sense. Just because you are running ads does not mean you are running the toe fungus. Right. You can the run one, the toe the fungus. One trick. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those would both be great. I would like yeah. them. But, you know, particularly in high value audiences, like look at like the businesses that were built like by Axios, by Politico. Look at even like subscription-based things like Punchbowl. They're probably eight to one ads versus subscription hmm. revenue. Yeah, it's something that I want to think more about. Like, I think by the end what, of this podcast, yeah. we're going to like have an ad network up and running for platformer. Well, what I honestly wish is if Substack <laughs> said, <laughs> if Substack said we like you can enable ads for your free subs and turn them off for your paid subs, I would do that because I would also love to offer the ad free option. Like, because then it just becomes something else that I put in the bundle that gets you to convert to paid, right? So if Substack builds that, I think it's like, actually a pretty easy switch for me to flip. And if they don't, then it's like, okay, am I going to like, you know, modestly annoy some of my subscribers by showing them an ad? Once well, a week? here's something that I will say as like, you know, the ad guy in this conversation, mm. I guess. I didn't ever, I don't want to be in that position, but I am. Um, here we are. Is I think it's like, I think there are not that many people who actually pay in order to get uh, away from advertising. Like I know like it, it does in, in, in like Netflix and that kind of like interruptive advertising. I don't think that's necessarily the case in, in, 
particularly in the types of newsletter ads that people, they're not like... Well, the thing not, is, I, the, here's the thing. I believe you that most people don't. But the, th- the other thing is, I am one of those people. <laughs> it's like, it's like very hard for me. Yeah. Well, because we pattern it based on like our own preferences, yeah, but it's exactly. a very like, I'll say it, it's like an elite phenomenon of people who... Um, who pay to avoid advertising. Most people are like fine with it. And I mean, you're not like B2B exactly. You're like an influencer, influence play. Like how do you describe your... I mean, I try to keep it pretty broad, right? I write about, I describe it a, a few different ways. The most common ways I say is, you know, I write about social networks and democracy, but like I call it a platform because because on some level, it's just a newsletter about platforms and like specifically the policies and that, that platforms have to adopt and the challenges that they have as they grow and as they sort of encounter different issues. And this winds up affecting mostly the social networks, like the social networks feel at first, but man, you go one ring out and, you know, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, and all these tiny startups, they all run into the same thing. So, so I do think of like my paying customer is somebody who is struggling with that. There are definitely some people that are like, I like to know what's going on in Silicon Valley. I like these link roundups that are in here. And I like sort of getting, you know, a daily thought about, you know, what's happening in the tech world. Um, you know, I, I guess, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's so funny, Brian, it's like the more I'm talking, I'm like, I really should su- like um, uh, survey my subscribers. So I know what the heck I'm talking about. Yeah. Like, you know, like, I really am just like doing a vibes based approach yeah. to this business No, we're right going to get both that up and running by the time this is <laughs> yeah. over. We're going to get the ad network up and running. But step one is to get this survey out so we can sell the ads. I think that's like a good point because like, if people are using your, I mean, do you know, like if people are subscribing and paying you like with corporate credit cards versus with oh, their yeah. personal? Yeah. Well, I mean, because like, I, so I, anytime somebody like pays to become a platform subscriber, I get an email because I always want to see the name, you know, like if I know them, if they're a famous person, like whatever. And yeah, I see a lot. I want to of... see the money. I would want to see the money. I mean, that would oh, be Oh, I see the money exciting. too. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, so it'll tell you right there. It's like, is it, you know, is it a 10 bucks a month? Is it a hundred bucks a year? Yeah. Right. Is it a mystery tier subscriber? Very exciting when that happens. Um, <laughs> so uh, I have a mystery tier that's a thousand dollars a year that people actually do pay for it's like one of the greatest yeah. things that's ever happened to me but uh, everyone should do that by the way because there's a yeah. lot of people out there you do not know the price elasticity of your product unless you like put like a pretty high number out there truly yeah so i got i gotta see that but you know i see a lot of the google.coms the amazon.coms i mean a really interesting thing is i see people become paid subscribers at businesses i'm a video game nerd and there's this really sort of like weird arty studio called quantic dream and like five or six people from like quanticdream.com signed up. I'm like, is are they making a video game about tech platform? Like what is even happening? But it's, it's really fun. So you had a great post on your like sort of two year, but there was something missing. You didn't oh, say how me. many, you didn't say how many like paying subscribers you had or how much revenue you're generating. And my thing is just like, it just feels tacky to me. You know, it's, it's like, I think it's totally tacky. Like I think most people just sit down and they're like, let me tell you exactly how much money I brought in this year. It's like most people don't do that, you know? So what I try to tell people is like, it's the best job I've ever had. It's sustainable. It's growing. I can are tell you, you making more. Are you making more than you made it at yes. uh, Vox? It's by a substantial margin. Oh, okay. So you, you were know, either being underpaid by Vox or you're doing there's really, really well. There's very little good argument that I was being underpaid by Vox. <laughs> they were, they were okay, really so you're done. doing extremely well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm doing, yes, I feel like I'm doing extremely well for sure. Okay, so then I think the big question about this entire Substack and all the other newsletter thing is like, is this just like another elite phenomenon? Is there a middle class to Substack, right? I mean, as a side hustle, sure. But like as a very sustainable, well-paid proposition, how many people are going to be... I mean, you must rank among the highest. Probably. I think I'm like the number two tech publication. So you've gotten to the other side in some ways in that you've validated this as absolutely as like a one-person media company. This totally works. 
Yeah. Yeah. And when I went independent, my hope was that two years on, so many more people were going to do this. And I spent that first year that I was independent talking to so many bold-faced name reporters at the New York Times, the Atlantic, like you name it, because they were all thinking about doing the exact same thing. And I was trying to encourage them to do it because I was having so much fun with it and it was succeeding. But so very few people pulled that trigger. And I think individually, they all had good reasons. But I have been shocked at how few people, relatively speaking, have followed, right? Most people have really wanted the comfort, the stability of that standard media job. You know, I have one friend who said, like, I love what you do, but I'm just streaky as a writer. Like I have a good month and then I have a bad month. And if you're writing on Substack, you may not feel like you can afford to have a bad month. Yeah. It's an interesting sort of pressure. I think, you know, journalists put a lot of pressure on themselves and the best ones put a lot of pressure on themselves. Like, <laughs> And if I could just interrupt, something you said earlier is so true, which is that the nature of our profession makes us less likely to start businesses. If you're a business reporter, almost the only question you're ever asking about a business is, what could go wrong or what went wrong? <laughs> exactly. That like, there's no worse mindset. <laughs> it's antithetical to entrepreneurialism. Exactly. Like, it's completely resistant to it, right? Yeah. But the other thing that you mentioned is also real, which is like, we're kept away from the business, like as babies. How many years I was like, oh, I'm terrible at math. And I am still terrible at math. And now I have to have an accountant and a bookkeeper to be like good at it for yeah. me, you know? But we do have all of these flaws that, that make it hard for us to start these businesses. And yet... You know, if somebody came to you and they're like, well, if you like just spend a little time, you know, thinking about this, you could make like two, three times what you're making now. Like, would that trade off feel worth it? And I, I just have to believe it would feel worth it to people. Because keep in mind, like the journalism industry is still in a crisis. And you know this better than anyone, Brian, but it's like outside a couple of the like major leading lights, there's a lot of people clinging on to mediocre jobs, hoping that they're going to get like a 2% cost of living increase when inflation's out of control. You know, if you're 25 and you're making $60,000 a year and you live in a major US hub and you ever want to buy a home someday, you can't do that with your media job. Right. So if you want to stay in this business, I mean, that's the thing. Like for me, it's like this is a commitment to the business. Like this is the thing that yeah. I want to do. You know, so it's like, well, if I want to do this, but I also want to do like what have typically been considered basic things like buying a home, then I can't really do that from the confines of a normal media job. And I'm just, I'm surprised at how little discussion of that I see. The de-risking is really important. And I think Substack was trying to de-risk with a lot of these grants and stuff like this, but you, you can't scale that kind of thing. That's why I'm interested in the kind of defector model and stuff like this, mm -hmm. where you get a little bit of like the best of both worlds, right? You have that autonomy that, you know, you're not working for the man and you have upside, you know, which yeah. I think sometimes is overrated, but I mean, people... Again, they don't go into journalism. It's not like a rational decision if you're looking to maximize your like lifetime income. But, you know, you do want to, you know, get greedy enough to like, I don't know, like own like a thousand square foot apartment or something like that. <laughs> exactly. By the time you're 65, go figure. But that's why I think it's really interesting where, and to me, the next like chapter is going to be where do these kind of successful solo businesses go? Do you want to keep this because you're doing... You're doing a podcast that's coming out yeah. soon with 
with the Times, right? You yeah. still do stuff with The Verge. You've been publishing four times a week. You're going to be doing it three times a week, which is probably the best move because it's a lot. Yeah. I don't know how you did that, honestly. <laughs> Fun. Are you going to build like, are you building a media company? Like a, a real media company? You're going to start to bring on people? Or do you want to keep yeah. it a, like a Ben Thompson model? Well, I don't know if I would call it a real media company. When I launched it, I said I wanted to start a tiny media company. And that's kind of still how it feels to me. So I have hired a person. It's going to be kind of a hybrid editorial operational role. And the idea is this person will do journalism. So like platformer subscribers are going to get more journalism. Some of it will be free. Some of it will be behind the paywall. Hopefully, we're going to give you more reasons to subscribe to support the work that we're doing. But then this person is also going to be doing stuff on the operational side, right? Like what can we do to grow subscriptions? And maybe we decide we do want to look at ads. That might be something that this person took on. So the idea is to divvy up those responsibilities. And while this person is doing that, I'm going to have more time to report, to write, to think, to read, to do some of the stuff that I feel like I've sacrificed by doing the four columns a week and running the business. Okay. How do you think of like the enterprise value? Because like this totally works as like, you know, income and, yeah. and it's great and everything like this. Then you start to like think like, well... What about, what, what am I building here? Like, is this like, uh, you know, services businesses have low and if it's tied to an individual, well then, you know, there's not like, there's not a lot of enterprise value in that because it only has value with the individual. Sure. Well, so at the risk of saying things that may lead you to ask more questions that I don't want to answer, like people have tried to acquire platform. People have like thrown numbers at me and it's been cool. I didn't feel like at the end of doing that deal, it would change my life to the point that I wanted to go take another media job. Also, my business is pretty new. It's like two years old. It's yeah. still growing fast enough that it feels like a weird time to sell it, right? Like it doesn't feel mature yet. <laughs> and they're just kind of things that I want to try. But, you know... On one hand, I kind of don't care what the enterprise value is because if I just do this, like for, I've sort of told myself in my mind, this is a 10 year project. So, like, I'm two years into a 10 year project. If I do it for eight more years, you know, then I'll be 50 years old and I can decide if I want to keep writing it or if I want to take a step back or like something. Um, I'm so happy to just do that. Was the whole point was to just like figure out a thing I could do in my 40s and not worry about getting laid <laughs> off. Right. But if something comes along in the meantime where it's like, oh, wow, like you actually really have built an asset here and like you're working with a couple of really talented people and we want to like buy your mailing list, your subscriber relationships and like bring you in to be a writer slash something. I can see a world when it happens. I'm not seeking it out, but it's like, it seems possible. Okay. So that's like, so you're just like sort of, and I think it's really interesting also with the types of businesses that journalists will be building versus like the types of business that like MBA, like the spreadsheet people built. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. <laughs> Anytime I'm in a spreadsheet, I'm like, oh my God, this is not, I got mocked at this breakfast the other day because I put the months in some forecast on like the wrong axis. And like the laughter was like, and I'm like, I don't, is this that funny? But like, wow. it's a different I mean, world. First of all, this sounds like a terrible <laughs> breakfast. <laughs> it was, but this, well, this is what happens when you go into like the sort of business side kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. So you're just going to sort of play it by ear as far as it's not like you're like, okay, the long-term 10 year plan is I want to have like platformer be like an independent publishing brand, like TechCrunch, but cultural and, and stuff like this. It's not that. You know, I mean, the thing is, like, brands are so ephemeral anyway. It's like, is any publication cool for longer than 10 years? Yeah. I, I don't know. There's so many zombie brands floating around, you know? It's like, the last thing I would want is, like, for Platformer to become Spin Magazine, where it's just, like, bought by, like, 
a hedge fund or like a you know a, the royal family of Monaco or something, and it just runs the yeah. toe fungus ads. Like th- that is not my dream for a platform. I'm like a music fan. It's like my favorite bands are the ones that come along and they put out three great albums and you never hear from them again, and they're legends. Like that's what I would much prefer that platformer is. Okay, so no Vegas residency for you? Oh, I would do a Vegas residency. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so final thing is I want to talk about this like burnout sort of thing. And like, yeah. I don't even know if, it, like, as he said, like burnout is a, is a real thing. Like, I'm yeah. glad I sort of was like not working at like a company for all, almost all of the pandemic, like a good part of the pandemic, just because it's like, it's become so top of mind. But also I think when you're doing anything solo, you start to realize, first of all, you start to have like an amazing appreciation for all those different departments and like what they did that you didn't do. And you might've had like a vague sort of understanding and appreciation, but you really understand it then. And I think that's important by the way, with the Substack model, because they've simplified it to such a degree. But at the same time, and particularly because you were doing like a daily newsletter at The Verge and you did four times a week, right? Mm -hmm. Like, holy shit. So I do write a lot. (laughs) To use a technical term in the journalism profession, holy shit. I'm happy to talk about that. People often comment about how often I'm writing. I want to say I depend heavily on the journalism that other people are doing, right? If you look at like my medium column, I'm taking a look at two or three stories that other people wrote that other people did the reporting on, and I'm trying to connect some dots. I'm trying to tie it back to something that happened before. I'm trying to spin it a little bit into how it might happen in the future. I'm trying to give you like one thought about like two or three other pieces of journalism. So that's why it's possible. I am not going out and reporting four stories start to finish every week. And when I look at what other great columnists do, like Ben Smith at the Times was one of my heroes writing his media column, like he only got one swing every single week and he just tried to bring the best reporting he could. What Ben Smith does would have been much harder for me, right? I used to get so paralyzed with fear when my editor would come into me once a week and say, what are you working on? You know, for me, the newsletter was a way to say like, what I'm going to work on is like trying to make sense of this insane world that we're living in right now. Right? Yeah. I'm going to try to connect some dots. I'm going to, you know, my, my newsletter comes out at 5 p.m. Pacific every day. And there's a reason for that, which is I started it when Facebook was in absolute crisis and then it became multiple branching crises. Those people were in meetings all day. They wanted a place where they could go at the end of the day to figure out what the hell happened when they were in <laughs> meetings, right? That's why it started out five days a week because there was something to write about every day. You know, Cambridge Analytica happened. There was five columns a week to be written about Cambridge Analytica. And it engendered so much goodwill among my readers, right? Because I was there doing something for them. And I figured out a way that I could write at a cadence that that made sense. I am a pretty fast writer. That's helpful, right? But like in a weird way, it's easier for me to write four columns than it would be for me to write one or two because that just puts so much pressure on you. And you're sort of a little bit out of the news cycle at that point, right? That's the amazing thing about four days a week is like, I wake up and I know my job will be to write about the most important thing that day. And it's usually not up to me to decide what is the most important thing that day. So it takes a lot of pressure off me. Have you ever written for magazines? A handful of times. Yeah. Like I I wrote for a magazine, like I had a page in a magazine for many years. And like, it was, it it was that, like, it was like actually really hard because it was like, it's the end of the, like, you can't just grab onto a news cycle and like, you've got to come with something totally totally original and this isn't something like oh can we embargo this and will it hold it's like no no also by the way readers can tell when you're phoning it in 
reader, you know, readers can tell if you didn't have a good idea that day, right? And um, in a weird, because I write so much, I think readers are very forgiving because they're like, well, he writes four a week. You know, he writes, if he writes <laughs> four true. a week and like one or two of them weren't great, it's like, well, he writes four a week. Like that's actually my terror about going down to three is like, I, do, I feel like it really ups the pressure on me. And I'm just, you know, hoping people like the podcast enough. But to put so up you're with going it. down to three. So what was the, like you said this, like four like yeah. worked and you're, yeah. you, you're able to do it very quickly, I guess. And like, yeah. but I just think like it's volume. Like, I mean, anyone gets into this, like, and this is why, you know, I see there's a lot of people who are like, you know, who have like been on the non-journalist side that like are like, oh, I'll do like a, the newsletter and stuff. And they have like deep expertise. And I was like, that's this is great in theory and stuff like this. But do not underrate the ability to produce like good copy. Forget about great. Yeah. Good copy yeah. several times a week. Really hard. It's hard to do yeah. once a week, frankly, for most yeah. people. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm 20 years into my career. I've been writing for a long time. I've just been training that muscle. I've been writing on deadline yeah, exactly. almost every day since I was 21, you know? So like that comes in really handy. The other thing I would say, I authentically love the stuff that I write about. I wake up every day and I am thrilled to find out what happened to Facebook and YouTube and Snapchat and Twitter overnight, right? And when something pops up like Be Real, I'm like, what is the fastest I can get in front of the Be Real CEO? Tell me everything about your life. What are you going to do? I know 15 things that are about to happen to your business. How many of them have you thought of, right? Like that stuff just electrifies me. And when I talk to most reporters about their beats, one, the beat was assigned to them, right? The, the publication yeah. said, we need a Google reporter. And you said, well, okay, I guess I'll cover Google, right? And that's like 85% of the workforce in business and tech journalism. So the people who are covering the beat that is the thing that they're authentically curious about is vanishingly small. And I think it's a huge reason why more people haven't started these kind of solo businesses. Yeah, I think that's a great point because like I would always like advocate for people like going narrow and deep. I know like for myself, like I just looked around at like at J school, which is a mistake anyway, but like I looked around and I was like way more talented people and I was like, oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, I got to specialize hopefully where they're not specializing. And I was like, oh, ah, completely. online advertising. <laughs> Dude, it's so real though. And like one thing I also went to J school, one thing I wish they had told us that is there are many different ways to be good at journalism. You know, yeah. like one of my heroes is Kara Swisher. I rent a house from her <laughs> that I'm in right now. Oh, really? And she's, yeah, breaking news. It's something we've, we talk about a lot, but she loves to interrupt people. She loves to annoy people, right? She loves to just call people up and just demand answers, right? I hate all of these things. I hate making people feel uncomfortable. <laughs> I hate it when I ask a question and I can see that there's sort of like a pained expression in their face. I would rather like not like make the cold call you know, I would rather have somebody send me an email and be like, hey, you should like look into this thing, you know? So it's like, these are all terrible traits for a journalist, but I have like found a form and like a way of work yeah. that that hides all of the weaknesses and emphasizes the strengths and any journalist can do that. Yeah, it's like finding your leverage. I mean, this is something yes. that everyone on the business and sales side knows, like everything is leverage on the sales side. And I just wish like there was like of the courses that we should have been taught in school, like finances and stuff like this, but like leverage, like yeah. just do a day on leverage because like basically the entire world is revolves around like what leverage do you have? And that's the same as like a person. Like you think about like what differentiates me in the market? What gives me leverage? Because otherwise, and if you're in journalism, they will replace you with someone cheaper. I promise you. <laughs> like 100% we subleased from Business Insider. When I got on the elevator and looked around at people like that were like far, far younger than me, it wasn't because they understood TikTok better than people my age. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. It just wasn't. It's real. It's real. All right. 
It has been real. We didn't get the ad network up and running, but if anyone wants to run any ads on platform or just contact me and I'll work a deal out. <laughs> Thank you so, so much, Brian. <laughs> All right, Casey, this is fun. Appreciate it. This was fun. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. People, go to platformer.news and starting October 7th, you can hear our new show at the New York Times. It'll be a lot of fun. Awesome. All right. Thank you for listening this week. We will be back next week with a new episode. The Rebooting Show is produced by Pod Help Us. Podcasts are a great way to expand your client base. Pod Help Us lets you focus on having engaging conversations, giving your brand the full stack of services needed for a professional look and sound. Start your podcast today at podhelp.us.